0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. People have long been fascinated by celebrity crime. Somehow it seems more dramatic when people we've seen on screen or in front of adoring crowds are connected to crimes. And in most countries, and certainly in America, our musical stars are idolized perhaps even more than movie or TV stars. Maybe it's because music provides an emotional response. We might remember a particular time of our life for a special person when we hear a certain song, or because it helps to take us away for a while from our everyday problems. Or maybe we're awed by the talent it takes to create hit songs. When our musical stars are taken from us suddenly and too soon, it comes as a big shock that always takes us by surprise. Many seem to leave us far too young for many reasons. It's certainly true that drugs have claimed many of our brightest musical stars, from Elvis Presley to Jimi Hendrix to Whitney Houston and many more besides. But more shocking still are our musical icons who were gone too soon, either as victims of crimes or other mysterious circumstances. Join me over the next few episodes for a series called The Day the Music Died as I relate stories of the tragic endings of musical icons. Episode 9, Chapter 1, Marvin Gaye. I'd like to dedicate this episode to my mother, Maria Socorro Sanchez, who was also taken too soon. She was a big fan of the Motown hits of the 60s and 70s, and also of Mr. Marvin Gaye. I remember hearing his records as a kid, and it serves as part of the soundtrack of my childhood. This one's for you, Mom, and I hope you got to hear Marvin sing in person in heaven. Marvin Pence Gay was born April 2, 1939, in Washington, D.C. Marvin was the second oldest of four children, sandwiched in between two sisters and one brother. His parents were Marvin Sr. and Alberta. Marvin Sr. was born in 1914 in Lexington, Kentucky. He was one of 18 children. His mother was a very devout Pentecostal, and Marvin was brought up in the church. He joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church and began evangelizing as a young man. Marvin Sr. took his religion very seriously. Marvin's younger brother, Frankie, describes Seventh-day Adventists as a cross between Orthodox Judaism and Pentecostal Christianity. They are required to strictly observe the Sabbath. Nothing besides praying and praising God was allowed to take place between the hours of sunset on Fridays and sunset on Saturdays. The Bible was believed to be the unfailing word of God and all the rules strictly followed. Marvin Sr. would travel around as a preacher trying to save souls and spread the gospel. Marvin would sometimes preach and other times sing and play the piano during the church services. Music was a big part of the worship service. It was during one of his preaching road trips that Marvin met Alberta in 1934. They married in 1935 and moved to Washington, D.C. One family secret that didn't come to light until much later was that when Marvin Sr. met Alberta, she already had one child, a son named Michael. Marvin, while wanting to marry Alberta, did not want to raise another man's child, so Michael was sent to be raised by one of Alberta's sisters. Michael did not find out who his real mother was until he was a teenager. Another family secret was that Alberta's father had been committed to an insane asylum where he later died. The reason he was sent away was because he had shot and wounded his wife, Alberta's mother. Rumors of issues in Marvin's family were alluded to as well, But as with Alberta's family secrets, Marvin's weren't topics of discussion that were brought up often by family members. There were many family members who had been in trouble with the law, some for violent crimes including murder. As well, Marvin Sr. had five brothers, and there had always been talk in the family that some, if not all of the brothers, had homosexual tendencies. Marvin Jr. and his brother Frankie were teased in the neighborhood about their own father being a sissy. They often had to get into schoolyard scraps to defend their father's reputation. It didn't help, of course, that their last name was actually Gay. Marvin used to complain about being made fun of for his last name. His father would simply say that Gay meant happiness. No, it don't, Marvin would retort. Marvin's mother, Alberta, worked as a domestic and often was a sole breadwinner for the family. Marvin Sr., strictly adhering to his religious beliefs to keep the Sabbath, would not work on Saturdays and at this time, most full-time jobs required a six-day work week. Marvin's senior-only job often was as a preacher, and as his congregation was never more than a few people, he didn't bring in much money to help provide for his family. Another drawback to his unemployment was that he was almost always home and would strictly monitor everything his children did. He constantly was on them to remain holy and above reproach. They were not allowed to run wild, as he would call it, around with the other children, but should be home studying and reading the Bible. Saturdays, while most children were watching cartoons and playing with their friends, Marvin and his siblings were required to attend church all day. Other children thought they were odd and didn't understand why they weren't in church on Sundays like everyone else. Marvin only had a couple of activities that he enjoyed that were allowed by his father. One was sports, and Marvin was a gifted athlete from the time he was a young child. He loved football especially, and later in life would even consider trying out for a professional football team but because of the strict tenets of his religion, he could not play in games on Saturdays, so he couldn't participate in school sports teams. His other love was always music. This was acceptable to his father since he was playing and singing church hymns and performing during the services. Marvin Sr. taught him to play the piano and he was a quick learner. While Marvin loved to sing and play, he was always shy and anxious to play in front of others. He reported later in his life that he always suffered from stage fright But as soon as he heard the applause from the crowd, he was in his element. He soon wanted to find other opportunities to perform and was able to try out and become a member of a local children's theater. His first live performance on stage was in one of their productions when he was 11 years old. Marvin always had mixed emotions about his religious upbringing. On the one hand, he hated all the rules and restrictions. He absolutely hated to be told what to do and always fought for freedom to make his own choices. This rebellion against authority would be a theme throughout his life. He would question the Bible teachings his father would try and instill in him. One day he asked his father, Who were God's mother and father? Not having a ready answer, his father replied, Some things you leave alone. That was not an acceptable answer for Marvin, and he would often make his father angry with his constant questioning of everything his father held dear. It was reported by the family that the children, especially rebellious Marvin, would often get whippings by their father. Some would say that Marvin Sr. would get angry at times and that the whippings could be brutal. But the reality was, during this time, children were often spanked or whipped as an acceptable form of punishment or teaching. How appropriate or inappropriate it was, and to what degree it was administered, is a debate we can have now. But at the time, it would probably not have been thought of as out of line, at least by the general population. It is also true that some children may have lingering resentments toward their parents due to this type of corporal punishment. Other rules that were difficult for Marvin and his siblings were the no dancing, no secular music, and no movie or television allowed restrictions. They were required to dress and behave modestly, no short skirts, makeup, or bare arms for the girls, and no long hair for the boys. But Marvin also did have a real and lasting belief in God. He loved to sing the church hymns, sing for the Lord as he would say. All his life, Marvin's music would be a combination of spirituality and sexuality and he would often struggle with these two aspects of his personality. But Marvin would argue with his father over rules, regulations, and beliefs, especially as he became a teen and wanted more freedom to choose what he felt was right for him. Marvin, like his father, had a temper, and more often than once, they almost came to blows. Marvin's brother Frankie remembers that his father used to say, "'I brought you into this world, and if you ever lay a hand on me, I will take you out.'" None of his children would ever think about actually following through, even if angry. They respected their father as almost all-powerful, and were often cowed by his status as a pastor or man of God. Marvin would later say that it felt sometimes as if his father was God to his children. One of the biggest disagreements between Marvin and his father was as Marvin became more immersed in his music and performing. Doo-wop groups were popular during the 50s, and Marvin joined up with other boys his age to harmonize and sing popular songs of the time. Marvin Sr. thought secular music was the devil's music and forbade his children to listen to it, much less perform it. It would be an ongoing argument between father and son throughout Marvin's life. Marvin now would defy his father and become a part of a group called the DC Tones while he was in high school. Marvin was always a pretty child, and as he grew up, he became a very good looking young man. Girls paid a lot of attention to the handsome boy, but Marvin was shy and self conscious. He couldn't easily talk to girls and felt awkward. But women paid a lot of attention to him and flirted openly. His father resented the attention Marvin received from girls. Most report that he would berate Marvin and lecture him about pride and the sins of the flesh. Marvin Sr. always considered himself good-looking, and the truth was, he was simply jealous. Marvin never liked school and didn't do well academically. While most thought him smart enough, he simply did not like the rules and the schedules he had to follow in school. School was just another way of being controlled and told what to do, and honestly, the only subject Marvin was interested in was music. Marvin came up with a way to get out of school, which he most likely wouldn't be able to complete anyway, and at the same time gain some freedom away from his father. He decided at age 17 to join the Air Force. When he announced his decision to his parents, his father's comment was, you'll never make the grade. Marvin left for training in 1956 at the age of 17. The Air Force recruiter had told Marvin that he could use his musical talents to perform for the troops to get him to enlist. When Marvin got to training and realized it was nothing but rules, regulations, training, and menial job assignments from dawn to dusk, he was in misery. This was the exact opposite of the freedom Marvin craved, and he was not cut out for it. He continued to get reprimanded for refusing to follow rules, and eight months later he found a way out. He faked a mental breakdown and was honorably discharged from service. It must have been humiliating to fail and prove his father right. When Marvin returned home, his mother fell all over him, so relieved to have her boy home. This irritated his father to no end. He always felt Alberta coddled Marvin too much and showed him too much attention. Marvin Sr. didn't hold back and had stinging words to say to Marvin about this latest failure. Marvin didn't waste time getting back to what he really loved singing. He joined a doo-wop group called the Marquise, singing tenor for the group. They sang in clubs around the D.C. area. They soon made a name for themselves, singing in clubs and theaters around D.C., and even had some appearances on local television shows. They caught the attention of Bo Diddley, and he had them audition for his record label. They wanted to sign the group, but Marvin was under age 21 and could not legally sign the contract. He knew his father would never agree to sign for him, so a friend of Marvin's forged his father's signature. Marvin Sr. found out and voiced his displeasure, but didn't stand in his way. Marvin didn't fancy himself just a doo-wop singer. He wanted to be seen as a romantic crooner in the style of Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, and Nat King Cole. He also felt this would be more acceptable to his father, and so he might gain his reproval. But what was selling were the songs the young people wanted to hear, pop and doo-wop songs. The Marquise recorded one single— a novelty song called Wyatt Earp. The song flopped, and they soon found themselves scrounging for any work to bring in some money. Marvin went one night to see a group called the Moonglows play at the Howard Theater. After their set, Marvin went up and introduced himself as a fan to Harvey Fuqua, the group's lead singer. He soon told him about his own group, the Marquise. Unknown to anyone, the Moonglows, although one of the most successful doo-wop groups of the time, was falling apart. One member was having drug problems, while still others were fighting amongst themselves over song rights, Harvey went to hear Marvin and his group, the Marquise, perform and was impressed. He hired them to be the new Moonglows in 1958. Marvin was now performing as a Moonglow and becoming more well-known and making more money. He had several admonitions from his father about his chosen career path. No parent wants his child to go into show business, he said. It's a hard road and few people make it because it's the roughest business in the world. It's like walking across quicksand. You might make it if you go fast enough, but there are very few people who don't sink along the way. One way or another, it will get you, he warned. Marvin, although 19 years old at this time, still lived at home and so was expected to follow the rules of the house, including curfew being 10 p.m. Of course, singing in clubs made it almost impossible for Marvin to adhere to this rule, and so he came in much later. One night, he came in after midnight and was locked out. The next day, he came back with Harvey Fuqua in tow. Harvey, Marvin, and his father had a long talk, and Marvin explained that he knew his father didn't agree with his decision, but he needed to pursue his musical career no matter what the cost. Warning him that he was probably making a mistake that might destroy him, he nevertheless liked Harvey and gave Marvin permission to leave with him to Detroit to pursue a recording career. He told him not to allow his son to run wild, but to train him and to teach him. With that, Marvin left home to try and make it in the music business. With the new Moonglows, Marvin sang backup for artists like Chuck Berry and Etta James. He sang lead for a couple of the Moonglows songs and felt like his musical career was beginning to take off. Musical artists at this time had backup dancers called Shake Dancers, girls who wore skimpy outfits and danced behind the group. Marvin started a relationship with a Shake Dancer named Tony. It was said that some of the girl dancers supplemented their income as prostitutes, and there were some rumors that Tony might have as well. What was known was that Marvin began smoking marijuana with Tony regularly. The relationship didn't last long, because while Marvin attracted women easily, he had a hard time maintaining relationships due to his jealous nature, stubbornness, and his temper. Marvin began touring with the New Moon Glows. On the way back north, the tour stopped to perform in Washington, D.C. His whole family came to watch Marvin perform. Everyone except his father, who declined to attend. Before returning to Detroit, the Moonglows disbanded. Fuqua cut everyone except Marvin. He took Marvin to a Christmas party to perform for Barry Gordy, who had just founded Motown Records in 1959, signing his first artist, Smokey Robinson. Gordy was impressed and made a deal to purchase a portion of Marvin's contract with tri Records, where he was currently working as a session musician. Gordy signed Marvin to record with a subsidiary of Motown Records called Tamla Records in 1960. Marvin also started dating Anna Gordy, sister to Barry. They clicked right away and within a couple of months were living together. Anna was 17 years older than Marvin. She was 38. He was just 21. Although he was teased for this difference in age by many, Marvin was truly in love for the first time. Anna was smart, pretty, poised, and classy. Marvin still felt self-conscious and unsure of himself. Anna immediately directed him to Motown's charm school, where the artists were instructed in manners, diction, grooming, fashion style, stage presence, and more. Marvin had always balked at any formal instruction and was not happy. Even so, he did well in most of his courses, except dancing. Marvin was stiff and ungraceful, and his shyness made dancing a painful exercise and embarrassment. Motown was gaining a reputation in turning out R&B hits. Marvin, stubbornly, had no interest in being an R&B singer and instead still fancied himself a crooner, wanting to record romantic standards. After much pleading, Marvin was given the green light to record a record titled The Soulful Moods of Marvin Gay," where he sang a couple of Gershwin tunes along with a Cole Porter song. The record flopped. Before releasing this first album, he changed the spelling of his last name, adding E to the end like Sam Cooke had done previously. He hoped the new spelling might help cut down some of the teasing and familiar jokes he had lived with all his life. Some thought he also did it to differentiate himself from his father, Marvin Sr. After the failure of his album, Marvin took to complaining about the lack of support Gordy was giving him. He felt that he had not pushed the record enough, and that was why sales were disappointing. He also still hated to be told what to do. Gordy was trying to help him have a successful album, but Marvin wanted to call his own shots. Now I'm supposed to follow what he says and do what he wants me to do, Marvin complained. It's like being at home. Encouraged by Gordy to record an R&B tune, Marvin finally complied and recorded his first R&B single, Stubborn Kind of Fellow. It was a success, reaching number eight on the R&B charts and number 46 on the Billboard chart. That same year, in 1962, Marvin took to the road with Motown's Motortown Review show. This was Gordy's idea to have all the label stars perform in a series of concerts to get them in front of as many audiences as possible. The tour began in October and would hit 34 cities over a two-month period, with stops along the East Coast, down in the South's Chitlin Circuit, and then back up North. It was a grueling schedule with no creature comforts. They traveled in an old city school bus with no bathroom or sleeping facilities, but crowds lined up to get in to see a whole night of top acts, including the Supremes, Martha Reeves and The Vandellas, The Marvelettes, Mary Wells, and Smokey Robinson and The Miracles. Later, other acts would join the tour, including The Temptations and Little Stevie Wonder, only 12 years old and already a top-selling artist. While Marvin still suffered from stage fright and felt self-conscious about his dancing, the women in the audience screamed for his good looks and his sexy, soulful singing. His hairstyle and his clothes had been chosen carefully by Motown to make him look like a smooth sex symbol. He learned to love the spotlight and the attention. He began to relax, and his onstage presence improved greatly. Marvin was making a name for himself with Motown. Audiences loved him, and record sales skyrocketed. He was able to save some money and do something he had always dreamed of. He purchased a house for his parents in northwest D.C. He was happy and proud to be able to get his parents out of the projects, and especially to improve his mother's life, whom he loved dearly. A few days after they had moved in, Marvin visited them to see how everything was. His mother was very happy and couldn't stop saying how wonderful the house was and what a blessing he was to her. Marvin had to go and search for his father, who'd shut himself in his bedroom. When Marvin asked him how he was finding the house and if there was anything they needed, rather than thanking him, his father launched into a lecture. "'Are you trying to let money talk for you, Marvin?' his father asked. "'I don't understand, Father,' Marvin replied. "'Let me put it this way, son.' A flower gives off its aroma to smell nice. There's no ulterior motive, no obligation. If you see a starving person give him food, there's no ulterior motive. What can he give back? But when you give something and want something in return... I don't understand, Father, Marvin said again. I'm saying this. It isn't going to make me feel any different about your music if you never gave me a dime or even if you gave me a million dollars. You cannot change me. I'm not trying to, Marvin protested. When I became a minister, I swore to a poverty life. I don't want to be rich. I don't want my reward here on earth. I will get mine in the spiritual world. But, Father, it's not like that at all, Marvin said. But his father waved him off. Later, Marvin would tell family members that all he ever wanted from his father was love. But it seems he could not give that to him. Marvin and Anna were married in June of 1963. Anna was becoming more jealous with Marvin's sex symbol image and all the female attention from his fans. To further prove his love to her, Marvin wrote the song Pride and Joy for Her. The song made the top 10 and Marvin became Motown's biggest solo star. After that, more hits kept coming. How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, You're the Wonderful One, and Can I Get a Witness all top the charts. At this time, he also started recording duets and would do so with several partners over his career. The first was with Mary Wells, recording an album called Together. The Marvin Gaye Review concerts happened in several cities, including San Francisco and Detroit, and broke records for concert tickets sold. In the fall of that year, he traveled to England to appear on a television program to promote his records in Europe. Besides performing, he was also still writing songs. He co-wrote Dancing in the Street, which became a hit for Martha and the Vandellas. And the song was later covered by many artists, including Van Halen, and as a duet by Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Marvin was even able to finally have his way and recorded an album called Hello Broadway, in which he sang the show tunes he loved. He began recording duets with Kim Weston, including It Takes Two. The public heard Marvin and Kim sing so harmoniously together and started rumors that they were a romantic item. It wasn't true, as Marvin, although in a strained marriage with Anna, still loved her, and Kim was engaged. But the record company made good use of the rumors to help sell more records, which made Anna even more angry. To try and save his marriage, Marvin agreed to have a baby with Anna. He told the family that Anna was expecting. But the truth was, Anna, at 42, was told she could no longer bear children. It was always a secret who actually bore the child. His family never knew, although they believed that Marvin's mother probably did. But in November 1965, Marvin Pence Gay III was born. Marvin gave him the name he had always hated. Marvin simply explained that it was a family tradition, but more likely it was another way to try and please his father. However, he did include the E at the end of his son's name, like his own. In 1966, Marvin was teamed with his longest-lasting and most successful partner, 21-year-old Tammy Terrell. Their singing styles meshed beautifully. Marvin grew to love Tammy as a sister. She was in love with David Ruffin, a member of The Temptations, and her and Marvin became close friends. Their first single together, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, became a huge hit for Motown, and they sent Marvin and Tammy on tour together on the success of it. For the next two years, they would record a string of hits that are recognized as classics today. Your Precious Love, You're All I Need to Get By, and Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, among others. But it was a secret that many of the hits that were released in 1968 and 69 were actually recorded in 1967. In October 1967, Tammy collapsed on stage while performing with Marvin. It was discovered that Tammy had a brain tumor. Accounts vary and say that she had either always suffered headaches and migraines as a child, so perhaps it was something she'd had from birth. But there's another account that Tammy had allegedly been in abusive relationships with both James Brown and David Ruffin, and that during one incident had either been kicked or hit in the head, which had led to an injury so severe that a blood clot had formed and had turned into a tumor. Almost the exact same scenario that happened to Ariel Castro's wife that I discuss in episode 3. Whatever the cause, Tammy by 1968 was very ill. She had 8 unsuccessful brain operations and tragically died on March 16, 1970, at the age of 24. Marvin had always been prone to bouts of periodic depression, and now with the loss of his good friend and musical partner, he spiraled downward. He disappeared for a time from the public eye, but he was still composing music. At the same time, there was a lot of political turmoil happening, and Marvin, like the rest of the country, started to pay attention to these issues. The war was being fought in Vietnam, and Marvin's brother Frankie had been called up. The war was being protested at home, and civil unrest was growing. The shooting of students at Kent State, the riots in Watts, Chicago, and Detroit, and the assassinations of both Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were heavy on the minds of many Americans. Marvin's marriage had also fallen apart. While he had long suffered the jealousy and accusations of infidelity by Anna, and many say he was never unfaithful, although others are unsure. Ironically, it was Anna who was caught having an affair by Marvin. Marvin used all the turmoil in his life and put it into new music. He made a big change, however, moving away from pop tunes and R&B ballads, and wrote songs about war, urban decay, police brutality, unemployment, and poverty. These were the songs that made it perhaps Marvin's greatest album, What's Going On. Hailed by many today as a masterpiece, it was Marvin's first self written, self produced album. It was also considered the first concept album and was one of the first albums to have the song lyrics written on the jacket. Songs like What's Going On? Mercy, Mercy Me? The Ecology? and Inner City Blues spoke to hot topics that younger people were becoming more concerned about. He presented some of the first songs to Barry Gordy, and he didn't like it deeming them too controversial and not fitting with Motown's image. Marvin once again got stubborn, refusing to record anything else from Motown until What's Going On was released. The single was released in January 1971 and quickly shot to the top of the charts. Gordy then gave the go-ahead to record the entire album, and it was quickly recorded and released in May of that same year. It was a commercial success with three of the songs becoming top ten singles— But even more satisfying for Marvin was the critical raves it received. The beginning of the song, What's Going On, was what Gordy particularly hated. It starts with what sounds like party chatter over the beginning strains of music. A fun fact was that the chatter that was recorded was a gathering that was made up of some of the Detroit Lions players hanging out together. Marvin had actually sought out a position on the team during his time away from performing for Motown. He'd always been athletic and loved to play football but it was quickly determined that should he be injured, it would affect his musical career, and he was not allowed to try out. The beginning of this song may perhaps be one of the most recognizable pieces of music from that decade. The 1970s began Marvin Gaye's political period. He grew a beard, dressed more casually, and became supportive of the Black Power movement. However, he didn't agree with militant or violent activities, and also spoke against disrespect for the police or the government. In 1972, Washington, D.C. pronounced May 1st as Marvin Gaye Day. With all the other festivities, a benefit concert was held at Kennedy Center. Marvin Sr. attended the concert. It was the first time he had seen his son perform professionally. Marvin was over the moon that day. It was also the first time he had heard his father say he was proud of him. Motown had moved its headquarters from Detroit to Los Angeles, and now Marvin decided it was time to make the move as well. He and Anna were still on-again, off-again relationship, as Marvin was trying to stay close to his son. So Anna and little Marvin also moved to L.A. Marvin also dipped his hand into some investments. He had always been generous. Too generous, some would say. He was often foolish with money. But one investment that did pay off? Marvin would give his friend Wally Amos $10,000 to start his business, Famous Amos Cookies. Marvin also purchased a large Tudor-style house that included a guest house behind it on Gramercy Place in Los Angeles. He moved his parents into it. Anna decided to move into her sister's home in Beverly Hills while Marvin took a small apartment in Culver City that he used to write and record music. In 1973, Marvin recorded Let's Get It On. Marvin was back to his sexy songs, but this time he felt it was on his own terms. He was expressing sexuality in an open and honest way and giving permission to others to do the same. While recording the song, some people who were friends of the producer were invited to watch. One of them was Janice Hunter. Marvin fell in lust at first sight. Although Janice was only 17 and Marvin 34, within two months they were living together. It was no secret that Marvin had been indulging in increasing drug use into the 70s. What started out as marijuana in the 60s turned into the drug of choice of the 1970s and the growing disco era, cocaine. Marvin used the excuse that it helped him to relax on stage, and this was probably true. He seemed to have lost his inhibitions and exuded sex on stage now for admiring fans. Some fans took it to another level and believed themselves to be in love with him, following him from show to show. One such fan's husband was not too happy with his wife's attentions towards the singer and threatened to harm Marvin. Marvin began to be shadowed by security wherever he went for his own safety. He also began to have a real fear of being harmed. Whether this was due to the threats or the increasing cocaine use or a combination of the two is debatable. Anna and Marvin were still legally married. By this time, Marvin had also had two children with Jan, a girl Nona and a boy nicknamed Bubby. Marvin and Anna finalized their divorce in 1977, and she was awarded $600,000 in alimony an amount that Marvin could not pay. His unpaid bills were piling up. Marvin was never good with money, and he always spent beyond his means, and his increasing drug use was costing him untold amounts as well. He was in trouble with the IRS for unpaid taxes and was being sued by a number of creditors for unpaid bills, including the Chateau Marmont, the premier hotel in Beverly Hills, to the tune of $14,000. Marvin recorded a record as basically a goodbye, and perhaps worse, to his ex-wife, Anna, hoping he would make enough to pay her the $600,000 he owed her. The album titled Here My Dear was a commercial flop, earning less than half of what Marvin owed her. In 1977, he released a live album that had been recorded during a London concert. Titled Live at the London Palladium, the album was four sides and over 80 minutes long. He performs old Motown hits along with his newer songs. The concert only filled three sides of the four-side LP, so they recorded an additional song for the fourth side. Motown wanted a disco song. Disco was a big seller in 1977, so the song Got to Give It Up was born. It was a 12-minute long dance party song and went on to be a number one hit. Marvin's personal life was still in chaos. His drug use was out of control and causing more angry outbursts than paranoia. After almost five years and two children, Jan threatened to leave him if he didn't marry her, and so they were wed in October 1977. He was unhappy at Motown and wanted to leave, but he needed the money, so he signed an additional seven-year contract with the label. His debts were so high that he decided to file bankruptcy. While the amount is disputed, it's reported that his debt to the IRS alone was as high as $6 million. He felt trapped at Motown and trapped at being married to Jan. While he considered her his soulmate, the relationship was rocky from the start. Jan would also admit to having a serious drug problem, and there were infidelities within the marriage as well. In 1979, Jan began seeing Rick James and moved out of the house she shared with Marvin and in with her mother. Later, when her affair with James was over, she would have an ongoing relationship with Teddy Pendergrass. Another big R&B star of the 70s, he was a younger man and Marvin had considered him a friend. Marvin, fearing being charged and jailed for tax evasion, left for a concert in Japan. He took along his mother and his brother Frankie. He had grown increasingly stressed out in California and Frankie remembers how relieved Marvin seemed to be once he was away from American soil. On the way back, they landed in Hawaii before their final leg to Los Angeles. Marvin parted ways with them, deciding to stay indefinitely in Hawaii. He retreated to a secluded beach in Maui and began partying with friends who flew over to crash and with locals. He was living in a van that was parked on the beach and was often high and disheveled. His brother was shocked to find him in this condition when he came to try and talk him into coming home. Meanwhile, Marvin was reaching out to Jan to try and make up with her. She flew to Hawaii with the kids to see him, but they soon had a violent fight and she left. Jan, also having her own drug problem at the same time, left Bubby with Marvin's sister Sweetie. When Jan didn't return by the next day, Sweetie called Marvin to ask him what he should do. He told her to bring Bubby to him. Sweetie took Bubby to Hawaii and left him with Marvin. When Jan found out, she was furious, but she was not able to get to Hawaii to retrieve him. Marvin's mother was increasingly worried. He was supposed to have begun a European tour, which he had postponed, and now he was alone with his young son in Hawaii, being a beach bum instead. Marvin called his mother, telling her that he needed money. He asked her to bring some of the diamond jewelry he had bought for her over the years so he could sell it for cash. When she arrived with the jewels, she was horrified by the state Marvin was in, drugged and passed out on the beach while Bubby played alone nearby. She took the money they were able to get for the jewelry and rented a condo in Maui. Alberta nursed Marvin back to health and took care of Bubby for two months. She pleaded with him to return with her, but he refused. He was still afraid of the authorities waiting for him for his unpaid debts. It was only his need to be back recording and performing that seemed to eventually pull him out of his hole. It helped that Motown was allowed by the bankruptcy court to advance some money for his next album, since recording was his primary means of earning money, and if unable to do so, his creditors would unlikely to ever be paid. Marvin took the money and rented a two-bedroom condo on Oahu and began writing and recording again. His European tour had been rescheduled to begin that following summer. The European tour served another purpose for Marvin as well. Jan had filed for custody of Bubby, and Marvin took him out of the country with him so that she couldn't serve the custody order. Marvin started his European tour in London in 1980. While touring this time, Marvin did well. He stayed mostly clear of drugs, and the tour went well. He continued touring through the end of the year and was seen frequently with Lady Eve Foxwell a member of the British aristocracy who was a huge fan, a big supporter, taking him to the parties and gatherings to meet important people, and possibly a lover, even though Lady Edith was in her 60s. Marvin admired her class and style and was well-treated by her during his stay in Europe. In 1981, the tour took Marvin to Belgium, where he met Freddie Kosert, a boxing promoter who introduced Marvin to Muhammad Ali. Freddie took Marvin under his wing and began getting him healthy and back in shape he put him on a strict diet and workout regimen. Marvin began to be in better shape than he had been in a long time. At this time, he was finally able to cut ties with Motown and signed with CBS Records, who, as part of the deal, paid off his debts to clear him with the IRS. While Marvin never felt more comfortable and at home than when he was in Europe, now that he had a deal with CBS, he felt the pressure to make a successful comeback. He preferred to sing songs with more spiritual or socially conscious messages, but knew that the money was in the sexy, soulful songs his fans craved. So in 1982, he flew back to the U.S. While Freddie was a big part of Marvin's return to health and financial stability, as usual, Marvin began to balk at the structure Freddie tried to provide. Again, he felt controlled and began to rebel. His first album under CBS was Midnight Love, which was recorded in Belgium. The first single, Sexual Healing, was his longest-running number one single remaining in the top spot of the Billboard R&B charts for 10 weeks. While still feeling anxious about his return to the U.S., Marvin needed to come home to see his mother, who was in the hospital having surgery. His father had left to D.C. to sell their home there. While it was an odd time for him to be away, the family was relieved that Marvin and his father would not be thrust together so soon. As always, there was still friction whenever father was around Marvin, And he was especially displeased hearing about Marvin's money problems, drug abuse, and the increasingly sexual nature of his music. He rarely had anything good to say about his son, so the family felt relieved that he would not be there to greet Marvin at his return. Marvin was up for a Grammy, and while nominated before, he'd never won. This time, however, he was named the best male vocalist at the 1983 award ceremony. He also performed on Motown's 25th anniversary special and began a national tour that was to last four months. It had been four years since Marvin had toured in the States, and he was nervous whether the people would welcome him back. While Marvin had been sober and healthy in Europe, he also didn't have his usual entourage like in the States, who were always ready to supply him with drugs and party with him. And now that he was back, things were no different. He still had anxiety about performing, and drugs had always helped him to cope he felt added pressure from his new label to go all out with his sexy image. I mean, he was singing about sexual healing after all. But unknown to most people, Marvin was never comfortable with the overt sexuality he was required to present to audiences. So he numbed his insecurities with drugs. As he increased his use of cocaine and reportedly PCP as well, he began to act more bizarrely. He would ramble on between songs while on stage talking about the end of the world and other dark thoughts. His friends and family noticed his paranoia increasing. He believed people were trying to kill him, perhaps by poison. While on tour in Florida, he collapsed from exhaustion, dehydration, and was hospitalized. He returned to the stage a week later. He also hired more bodyguards and purchased more guns to protect himself. At one of his final shows at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, he was in bad shape. He could barely sing and the band easily drowned out his vocals. He was embarrassed and went into a deep depression. He mentioned having suicidal thoughts, but his religious beliefs would not allow it. To die by your own hand, he believed, would condemn you to hell. Increasingly, he felt despondent, like there was no way out. Marvin went to stay at his parents' home on Gramercy Place. No one wanted Marvin to be alone, and this seemed like a good place for him, where his mother and his brother, who was now living in the guest home with his wife and children, could keep an eye on him. His father was not happy with Marvin moving in, and they argued. argued. Marvin was so paranoid at this time that he kept a gun on him at all times, even when he was in his own home. Marvin had a good friend named Gloria Carlyle. She had helped him with his diet and nutrition regimen when he'd returned from Belgium. She was big on health and nutrition and tried to steer Marvin to a more healthy lifestyle. Marvin was romantically interested in her, and she loved Marvin, but knew that he had drug and other problems. She wouldn't date him, but she was always there for him when he needed her. Now he was reaching out to her, and when she saw the state he was in, she tried to get him to go into a drug treatment program. He agreed to go, but at the last minute after she had arranged everything, he refused to leave, saying that he would only go if she came and took him. She was in Northern California, taping television shows, and could not leave. She called him repeatedly, trying to convince him, but he kept requiring her time and attention before he tried to help himself. Tiring of his manipulations, she hung up on him and would not speak to him again. Others who loved Marvin also grew frustrated and cut ties with him as well. He was almost entirely alone and without friends, except for his mother and his brother Frankie, who were still trying to save him from himself. But the more attention his mother paid to him, the more angry his father became. His father had always been jealous of the attention she'd paid to her boy, but even more so now since he felt Marvin didn't deserve her help. Clearly, Marvin had taken the wrong path that his father had always preached to him about. Live clean, holy, and by God's laws, and never for your own gain. Ironically, Marvin Sr. wasn't so holy either. He was greedy for attention, enjoyed the material trappings that Marvin provided, no matter how he might have feigned disinterest, and, it was revealed, he'd had more than one affair during his long marriage to Alberta. One of these affairs produced a child, their half-brother Antoine. Whether this added to Marvin's anger towards his father is unknown. In Marvin's family, secrets were kept, long-held resentments were unspoken, and there was a steep price to pay for disrespecting a parent. While his mother tried to help Marvin, to get him to eat, to get up and engage with others, to stay away from his druggy friends and hangers-on, his father was constantly angry with her and berated her. She took refuge at the guesthouse with Frankie and his family— when she wasn't in the main house, seeing to Marvin and his father. There were three bedrooms upstairs in the main house. All three had connecting doors. Marvin's room was at one end, his mother's in the middle, and his father's room was next to hers. It made for very close quarters and a lot of tension. On Saturday, March 31st, Marvin turned on Frankie, accusing his brother, his most loyal friend and supporter, of terrible things. He was now convinced that no one loved him and everyone is out to hurt or take advantage of him. Frankie, realizing that Marvin was now at rock bottom, called their friend Dave Simmons. Together they agreed that they had no choice but to get Marvin into a rehab facility and planned to make that happen the very next day. The next day was April 1st, 1984, one day before Marvin's 45th birthday. Frankie, his wife Irene, and their children were at home in the guest house. At about 11 a.m., while Frankie was waiting for a phone call to finalize the arrangements to take Marvin to rehab, Irene came in and said she thought she had heard a shot outside. Frankie thought it was a car backfiring, nothing more. Soon they heard two more bangs, and right after that, Alberta screaming outside. They ran out, and Alberta collapsed into their arms. He's shot Marvin, she sobbed. He's killed my boy. Frankie ran into the main house. It was dark and quiet in the house. All the shades seemed to be drawn. He headed upstairs towards the bedrooms, calling out softly and then louder to Marvin. He didn't know what he would find and could hear his own heart bedding in his chest. He knew by this time Irene must have called the police. But where were they, he wondered. Where were the ambulances and the sirens? It was eerily quiet. He entered Marvin's room and at first just saw messy piles of clothes and papers. Then he saw Marvin lying on the floor, crumpled near the bed with only a bathrobe on. Marvin, he called, are you all right? He heard a faint moan. He then saw the blood coming from his chest and some blood on the rug where he was lying. Having served in combat in Vietnam, he moved Marvin and began to apply pressure to the wound to help staunch the bleeding. You're going to be fine, he told him. The medics are on their way. The paramedics had arrived, but they would not enter the home since they had been told there had been a shooting, but they did not know the location of the shooter. For their own safety, they were required to wait for the police to arrive to secure the situation. Irene begged them to go inside and help her brother-in-law. They asked, who got shot? Marvin Gay, she answered. The Marvin Gay? A paramedic asked. Oh my God. The police arrived, and they held the paramedics back longer, saying that Marvin's father, who they now were told had been the shooter, and the gun could be located and brought out. Incredibly, it was Irene who went in to find her father-in-law and make sure the gun was secured. Irene first found Marvin Sr. sitting at the edge of his bed, slowly putting on his shoes. He seemed to be in a daze. When she asked, where's the gun? He just stared at her blankly. She led him outside to the police. She went back upstairs and found the gun under her father-in-law's pillow. Meanwhile, Frankie stayed with Marvin, who was still barely conscious. Frankie was talking to Marvin, trying to assure him he'd be all right. Marvin was able to get a few words out. He first said, I got what I wanted. Don't talk like that, Frankie replied. No, he mumbled. I couldn't do it myself, so I made him do it, Marvin said. Frankie began to sob. Marvin was still alive when he was transported to the hospital. His family was hysterical. His father had been taken away by the police. Marvin Gaye died at the hospital at 1:01 p.m. He was 44 years old. So, what happened on this fateful day that caused a 70-year-old man to shoot and kill his own son? Let's first discuss the events of that morning and then talk a little about what might have been at play in this tragic outcome. That morning, Irene reports that she had brought Marvin a tray with his breakfast. He was in bad shape, saying that he ached all over and could barely stand. She helped him to sit up in bed to eat. A short time later, she brought Alberta her breakfast in her room next door to Marvin's. She noticed that all three connecting doors between Marvin, his mother's and his father's were all open. Alberta said she was not hungry that morning and asked Aunt Irene to give her breakfast to Marvin. Marvin Sr. was sitting on his bed in the room next to Alberta's and would have heard her saying this. Irene believes this angered her father-in-law. Again, she was catering to Marvin over her own husband. She didn't ask her to give her breakfast to her husband, but to give an extra tray to her son. The family firmly believes that Marvin Sr. had been jealous of his wife's attention to his son and much more since Marvin came back to stay with them. She did everything for Marvin, Irene says, fixed his food for him, sat with him while he ate, rubbed his feet to make him feel better, read and prayed with him. Father was jealous of all the pampering and the attention Marvin received from her. No one paid attention to him. This had begun way back when Marvin was only four years old and begun to sing in the church. Everyone made over the little boy. His musical talent would be far superior to his father's. His looks garnered him attention from females young and old. In all these ways, he surpassed his father. And when Marvin began to earn big money and started providing financially for his family, Marvin Sr. hugely resented it. He was never able to provide financially for his family through his preaching, what he felt was his gift, his calling. But Marvin was able to, and then some, with his musical gift. He felt displaced by his own son in the role as father and provider, and now his wife was making him the object of her affection over him. Obviously, Marvin knew of his father's anger and resentment towards him. He'd been hearing it all his life. And according to family members, the criticism and harsh words had escalated now that Marvin was living with his parents. Marvin reported feeling despondent, trapped, and hopeless. He talked of wanting to end his life. Maybe this was his way to make that happen without having the terrible sin of suicide to answer to before his God. It seemed that a fight ensued that morning. Whether Marvin picked the fight or if his father started it and Marvin continued to escalate the argument is unclear. There is a long-held belief that Marvin came to the rescue of his mother because his father was yelling at her and berating her. Alberta did give a statement to the police that suggests that scenario, but she changed the story more than once, telling Frankie and Irene soon after that there was no argument between husband and wife. So it might never be known what exactly happened that day. But clearly, Marvin angered his father enough for him to go and get a gun and then shoot his son three times at almost point-blank range. Another often heard story is that Marvin Sr. threw the gun on the lawn and was sitting on the porch waiting for the police. But as you heard in the account I just shared, that didn't happen. According to Frankie and Irene, who besides Alberta were the only people in the home that witnessed the day's events, he was not outside but inside the house until Irene went to retrieve him. There is also a report that Marvin had struck and possibly kicked his father that morning. While it is possible that there was some physical altercation, I could not find any reports that show, as some accounts have described, that Marvin Sr. had marks or bruises that showed an assault had occurred. Like I said, it's possible, but I couldn't find evidence for it. Marvin Sr. later said that he was afraid of Marvin. That's why he shot him. Maybe in the moment, he might have felt some fear during the argument. But instead of running away or leaving the room, he goes to another location to retrieve the gun and walks back towards his son to shoot him. That, in my opinion, is not how someone who is terrified for their life would behave. It's more likely that he was enraged and wanted to get back at his son for whatever he perceived to be his mistreatment of him. Tragically, the problems in this family between the father and his namesake son had festered for years and culminated in a terrible loss for all. Public viewing was held for Marvin Gaye at Forest Lawn Memorial Park on April 4, 1984. Over 10,000 people lined up for blocks to pay their respects. The service was attended by Smokey Robinson, Barry Gordy, Martha Reeves, among others. Stevie Wonder and Little Richard performed at the service. He was cremated the next day and his ashes were scattered over the Pacific Ocean. Marvin Gay Sr. was held at the Los Angeles County Jail awaiting his hearing. On June 15th, Alberta filed for divorce from her husband of almost 50 years. He was let out on bail and returned to the house on Gramercy Place while he waited. Charges were then reduced by the DA from first-degree murder to voluntary manslaughter. The state felt this was appropriate due to his age and infirmity. He was over 70 years old and it had been recently discovered that he had a small brain tumor that he had to have surgery to remove that May. They also cited the toxicology reports from Marvin's autopsy that showed he had cocaine in his system. They also stated that they believed his son had been the aggressor. Marvin Sr. pled no contest to these reduced charges. He spent a total of six weeks in custody. He was facing a maximum sentence of 13 years. On November 2nd of that year, he was released on a six-year suspended sentence plus five years probation. The judge called the circumstances terribly tragic, and said that Marvin provoked it and that it was all his fault. Marvin Sr. moved into the Inglewood retirement home where he stayed during his five-year probationary period. He then moved to Long Beach where he lived until 1998 when he died at the age of 84. Marvin's mother, Alberta, passed away three years after her son from cancer. While Marvin Gaye's life descended into drug addiction and ended in tragedy, that's of course not his whole story he has been remembered as one of Motown's brightest stars and most talented artists. Dozens of the songs he wrote and recorded are hailed as classics. Posthumously, he continues to garner awards, including being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987, given a star on Hollywood's Walk of Fame in 1990, honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 38th Annual Grammy Awards and having his song, What's Going On, including in National Public Radio's list of the 100 most important musical works of the 20th century. Thank you for listening to this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show and rate and review it in iTunes. And if you like it, please tell a friend. You can find me on Twitter at Upon a Crime and on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod. Until next time, be good to each other.